so uh, a very big welcome to all of you. Thank you for braving the extremely uh, cold and uninviting weather. Um, and welcome to this uh, public lecture in the series Gendering the Social Sciences, which is run by LSE Gender Institute. Uh, I'm Anne Phillips, and I'm chairing this meeting. Uh, meeting, uh, lecture. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> slipping into sort of alternative terminology there. Um, and uh, absolutely delighted to welcome our speaker, Claire Hemmings, who is Professor of Feminist Theory at the Gender Institute. Uh, Claire uh, joined LSE about the same time as I did, about 13 years ago. And I can still very vividly uh, remember the, uh, uh, when we interviewed her for the post of Lecturer in Gender Theory and the, the discussion afterwards when uh, one of the members of the panel said, well, you know, if you want somebody who can bring intellectual challenge to the Gender Institute and lead things in a new direction, really there's no question about it. And I think we all of us, we all of us agreed. It was obvious that the answer was Claire. Uh, she's been an enormously significant figure in the development of uh, feminist theory, uh, sex sexuality theory, uh, explorations of the effective turn in cultural theory um, within the UK, across Europe, across the Atlantic. Um, she's, uh, she's already uh, served her time as uh, director of the Gender Institute, though we're hoping we can persuade her to do it again at some point, um, where she's, uh, she's helped steer it in a, a very firmly in a transnational direction. Um, and I think she's inspired many uh, masters and PhD students uh, to go on and do important and interesting work in gender and sexuality studies. Uh, with her, uh, her most recent book, which is uh, Why Stories Matter, which was published by Duke University Press in uh, 2011, she's provided us with a, with a critical but not cynical um, analysis of the uh, the kinds of stories feminists tell themselves uh, about their own history and development. And I don't think any of us was surprised when she was awarded the 2012 Feminist and Women's Studies Association Book Prize for this book. Uh, the, uh, the work she's talking about tonight um, is uh, in some ways conceived as part two of that Why Stories Matter I believe the film comes a bit later, does it? Yes. <laughs> <You're> um, <laughs> and, and it starts uh, very much from the, the work and the life of Emma Goldman. Uh, the, the structure for tonight is that uh, Claire will lecture for about 50, 55 minutes, and then we have uh, uh, about uh, half an hour for question and answer discussion. And then uh, we warmly invite all of you who can bear the trek uh, out into the cold to join us on the fifth floor of Columbia House for a reception at the Gender Institute. And if you don't know where that is, just, just follow the, the crowd that seems to be moving in that direction. Uh, Claire's title for her lecture tonight is Sexual Politics and Revolution, Emma Goldman's Passion. So please now join me in welcoming her to give this lecture. <laughs> Can you hear me? 
sound okay? Thank you very much, Anne, for your introduction. Um, it's always much more nerve-wracking giving a paper to your home crowd uh, than it is if you go away. Um, but it's also lovely now that I see all of you, so many people known to me, uh, coming to listen to what I have to say. So I'm, I'm uh, overcoming the nerves and moving into delight mode, hopefully uh, in combination with Emma Goldman. One, of the past and present. Emma Goldman was an anarchist thinker and activist, born in 1869, died in 1940, whose life and work spanned one of the most exciting periods of socialist and anarchist revolutionary thought and action internationally. In her American years, up to her deportation in December 1919 in particular, she was a well-known figure vacillating between consistent movement she travelled endlessly to lecture across America, drawing crowds of thousands. Uh, let's see. There we go. I love this image of her. It's not a brilliant image, but you can see her talking to a crowd of men's hats, which I imagine was something she experienced quite consistently. Uh, consistent movement and constraint. She was imprisoned for incitement, birth control activism and anti-war activism and was prevented from crossing borders as an exile once she moved to Europe. She combined extraordinary optimism about the future with frequent bouts of depression and sickness, spoke back to authority and harangued her comrades for their weakness and inconsistency while her own views on revolution, the workers, and sexual freedom also adapted. She was fiercely loyal to her friends, maintaining lifelong correspondence with many thinkers and activists, and in particular, her staunchest chum, Alexander Berkman, though you would not want to cross her either. She famously horsewhipped Johann Most from the stage when he failed to support Berkman's attentat against industrial, uh, industrialist Henry Clay in the 1890s, and she must have made an amazing figure doing so, she leaped up, horsewhipped him, and then ran out. And cut off contact with birth control activist Margaret Sanger when their views differed, and spent a lot of time penning nastiness about her and circulating it. Devastated by what she witnessed in Russia after the revolution, Goldman was cast out by the European left for her outspoken opposition to the Bolshevik regime misguidedly, I think, publishing her opinions in the right-wing press, and only returned to something like her prior optimism in the early days of the Spanish Civil War. Like many of her comrades, Goldman died poor and isolated, having witnessed what we now see as the height and demise of the international labour movement. Yet despite acknowledging that she now knew revolution was not imminent, as she and everybody else thought at the time, she continued to believe that it was ultimately inevitable. Her personality was vibrant and explosive, and her views on women and men, sexuality, labor, violence, and literature brought together a range of disparate strands of contemporary thought. The New York Times magazine said of her in 1909, Emma Goldman is not a woman. She is a force. I've been interested in Emma Goldman as part of my ongoing investigation of the relationship between sexuality and social transformation as a way of approaching questions I have about sexuality as a revolutionary force. Too often, contemporary social and political theory continues to think sexuality is outside uh, or tangential to real concerns of materiality 
or as relevant only when framed through harm, victimisation or violence, not in terms of pleasure or connectivity. We are, still, we are familiar still with left critiques of concerns with gender and sexual, policy, uh, sexual politics as somehow a challenge to the solidarity necessary to bring about major social or political overhaul and to histories in which we are told that progressive fragmentation of a materialist politics has led to the necessity to reassert it in the face of distracting cultural concerns, identity politics, or a turn to language and deconstruction, a burden carried disproportionately by lesbian feminism initially and queer theory subsequently. So strong is this strand that contemporary theorists trying to bring sexuality and materiality together or trying to provide a materialist history of feminist sexual politics, for example, uh, the marvellous Rosemary Hennessy, also continue to prioritise constraint and harm, or in her case, commodification, as the only material evidence sexuality can bring to its trial. Thus, sexuality is most material when a negative force over people e.g. sexual violence against women, as is most commonly cited, or when it's sutured as identity to border and citizenship regulation, as in the contemporary state mobilisation of gay and lesbian identities, as particularly modern. <clears throat> A queer focus on embodiment and transgression is thus thought at best misguided in the awful times we live in, and at worst part of how neoliberalism consoles. When feminist theorists and poets and fiction writers such as Monique Wittig or Adrian Rich draw on the combined traditions of radical psychoanalysis, dialectical materialism and identity politics to insist that there is something about sexuality that cannot be reduced to its hierarchical bonds, we find it easier to cast them as essentialist or old-fashioned, important but ultimately naive, than to reevaluate our own certainties about the nature of both political domination and the kinds of social engagements that might provoke change. In her theorization of exploitation as a question of labor and love, and her insistent, passionate linking of sexual freedom and revolution, Emma Goldman provides an early, and to me, extremely seductive, challenge to recent historiographic certainties about both the history of the left and about contemporary feminist oppositions we assume we have inherited. Indeed, the period of Goldman's fame, the early, uh, her heightened fame, the early 1900s up to the First World War, is fairly bursting with socialists and anarchists dedicated to thinking through the question of sexual and gender politics as a central part of a theory of revolution. As Christine Stanstall indicates in American Moderns, sexual politics and the question of the new woman were in fact pivotal and not peripheral to the social, cultural and political fermentation that characterised the modern age. Anyone who hasn't read American Moderns uh, should certainly do so. And as Kathy Ferguson suggests in Emma Goldman Political Thinking in the Streets, quote, Goldman was very much of her time. Her time and place was saturated with the bodies, voices, and ideas of many hundreds of radical women, unquote. Goldman joined Crystal Eastman and Voltaire de Clare in their analyses of the horrors and exploitations of marriage. Max Eastman, Mabel Dodge Luhan, and Louise Bryant in their promotion of free love and communism. 
Margaret Sanger and Margaret Anderson in their analyses of the links between the banning of family limitation and the creation of a reserve army of labour, and Heinrich Ibsen, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells and Rebecca West in their creative linking in their creative linking of gendered, sexual, or plain individual freedom with utopianism. Importantly, too, she joined other radical anarchist women and men across the world in their scathing critiques of patriarchal male anarchist thinkers who sought to marginalise questions of sexuality and gender as either irrelevant or as equivalent harms that would be dispensed with come the revolution. It's still a familiar story. Thus, as Sharif Jemmy and Alex Pritchard both suggest, Goldman's work constitutes a direct challenge to the legacy of Proudhon's assumption that the home is the bedrock of appropriate morality in the face of religious and capitalist exploitation. To situate Goldman among her predecessors and peers is thus to provide an alternative historiography of the relationship between sexuality and materialism then, namely to consider it as an embedded argument, central, not peripheral to the history of the left, and inclusive of both an analysis of constraint and the importance of passion. As Linda Gordon suggests, what marks Goldman out among her peers is that she, quote, fused into a single ideology the many currents that mingled in American sex radicalism, unquote that were frequently held apart, in part because of her eclecticism. Goldman's thinking about sexuality, labor, and freedom draws on Engels, Malatesta, Bakunin, and Kropotkin, without their assumptions that property and women will organically disappear, takes up Stirner and Nietzsche's understandings of the relationship between individuality and social norms, and embraces Freud, unusually, whose lectures she attended in Vienna and the work of sexologists Carpenter, Ellis, and Hirschfeld. Interestingly, this eclecticism is frequently also cited as a reason not to take her as seriously as more focused theorists. While I join other feminists in suggesting that this combining is precisely what allows Goldman to develop her particular approach to both diagnosis and remedy, and that the sidelining, of course, is also a motivated one. It is her interest in linking questions of subjectivity, the unconscious, and creativity with the history of working-class oppression and reproductive labor that allows Goldman to articulate sexuality not simply as a metaphor for broader exploitation, nor as a parallel stream of, of gendered oppression, but as the center of women's oppression and that which must be reshaped as an internal resource. Such an approach enables her to articulate links between birth control and revolutionary subjectivity, prostitution and immigration, militarism, capitalism, and the reserve army of labor, homosexuality and creativity, and to center the body and sexual freedom as sites of reclaimed value and progressive possibility, as essential, not peripheral, for fostering the revolution to come in our daily lives now. Two, of labor and love. Let me give you a flavor of the arguments Goldman makes about the relationship between labor and love, the ways in which she traces an economy of sexuality and its impact on men and women. Goldman considered marriage a site of particular abuse. It carries only, quote, sorrow, misery, humiliation, tears and curses, agony and suffering, 
She's not, she's not in favour. <laughs> in this, she echoes her friend Agnes Smedley's marvellous reflection that, quote, marriage acts on me like a nutmeg grater, unquote. 1925. Presumably, shaving away the best parts and leaving a bitter, brittle husk. For Goldman, marriage is the basis of private property and the particular oppression of women. I just included this here, just thinking that it was quite great that at 70, in terms of her commemorative um, edition, that the, the, uh, the sideline is holds fast to anarchy. So I'm just going to read out these quotations uh, of labor and love. Marriage relations are the foundation of private property, ergo the foundation of our cruel and inhuman system. It always gives the man the right and power over his wife, not only over her body, but also over her actions, her wishes, in fact, over her whole life. She says this quite early on in 1897, in, in marriage, which is the basis for the longer piece marriage and love. Marriage is the private possession of one sex by the other. Marriage is primarily an economic arrangement, an insurance pact, only it is more binding. Its returns are insignificantly small compared with the investments. That marriage is a failure, none but the very stupid will deny. She, she uh, consistently talked about how uh, people who did not agree with her were, were very stupid, uh, uh, but also, um, which is a great tactic, um, but, <laughs> uh, but also, uh, if you think, most of the things that she's saying, she's, she's um, giving as addresses uh, where she's persuading the audience, who presumably are also um, invested in not wanting to appear stupid. Right, so this is a dynamic that's happening where she's, uh, the, the, most of these are given as lectures uh, before they're given, uh, before they're written and published. Uh, as to the protection of the woman, she says the idea is so revolting, such an outrage and an insult on life, so degrading to human dignity as to forever condemn this parasitic institution. No need for the woman to know anything of the man, save his income. As to the knowledge of the woman, what is there to know, except that she has a pleasing appearance? This is just to give you a sort of sense of the tone she uses and the argument she makes. Within marriage, then, women sell their own freedom in a false insurance pact that gives men the right over their bodies and lives and restricts their movement in the world. Marriage, for Goldman, is the perversion of love rather than its ideal form, for Goldman, reflecting a substitution of economic bargaining for real intersubjective possibility. Within this institution, women are commodities to be exchanged and their only currency is sex and attractiveness. The impact is on all women, though for Goldman it is bourgeois women who embody its worst aspects most completely because uh, they can become wholly commodified. So she says, in the passing of the family quite relatively late, women through all history have been a servant race, whether they have been farmhands, harnessed to peasant plows, or gorgeous show servants whose sumptuous liveries of satins and pearls and plumes lent luster to the establishment of their master. And they naturally have looked to their masters for their wages. 
In an interesting set of reflections on the white slave traffic from 1910, Goldman also blames American consumerism for levels of prostitution among recent migrants, who are seduced, in her view, by the possibility of owning superficial objects they can claim no other way. The driving force towards prostitution is the same as marriage, then, consumerist greed, not immorality. Marriage is thus prostitution, not metaphorically, but actually for Goldman, with the difference being the number of men one sells one's body to and the false morality that frames and regulates the relationship between both practices. No matter how poor, how miserable a married woman may be, she will yet think herself above the other, whom she calls a prostitute, who is an outcast. What a farce. The sole difference between her and the married woman is that the one has sold herself into chattel slavery during her life for a home or a title, and the other sells herself for the length of time she desires. She prostitutes herself every she married uh, prostitutes herself every hour, every day of her life. I can find no other name for the horrid, humiliating, and degrading condition of my married sisters than prostitution of the worst kind, with the only uh, uh, except. um, only accepting that the one is legal, the other illegal. It would be a mistake, I think, to read this in terms of her talking about prostitutes' desire um, as an endorsement of prostitution, sympathetic though she may be to the plight particularly um, of poor women. Uh, Goldman's point here is that marriage and prostitutions are two sides of the same poisoned coin, with the strictures of marriage and women's dependence producing rather than providing an alternative to prostitution. Further, the impact of the corruption of love in marriage is not only a question of economic freedom and the restriction of women to a private realm or a public shame. It shapes women's very being through subservience and passivity, as she takes on the affects required to represent this ideal. To succeed as a woman, the double bind is, of course, that she must inhabit her objectification more and more fully, such that her very character becomes saturated with the most pernicious aspects of unfreedom. So, of women's character, Goldman has, and these are fairly indicative, uh, has the following to say. The marriage insurance condemns her to lifelong dependency, to parasitism, to complete uselessness, individual as well as social. Small wonder if she becomes a nag, petty, quarrelsome, gossipy, unbearable. Thus driving the man from the house, she becomes reckless in appearance, clumsy in her movements, dependent in her decisions, cowardly in her judgment, a weight and a bore. Marriage robs man of his birthright, stunts his growth, poisons his body, keeps him in ignorance. The institution of marriage makes a parasite of woman an absolute dependent. It incapacitates her for life's struggles, annihilates her social consciousness, paralyzes her imagination, and then imposes its gracious protection. So while man is robbed, poisoned, and stunted by marriage, but is, quote, driven out by its affective dimensions. Woman has nowhere to go. She stays in the prison of pettiness, clinging to the scant rewards of corruption. Small wonder woman is understood not only by Goldman, but also by many of her contemporaries as the opposite of a revolutionary subject. 
both because of her particular form of privatised wage slavery, but also because of her ontological formation in and through duplicity and passivity, making her particularly hard to rouse to political transformation that requires an abandonment of feminine narcissism. It won't surprise you then that feminists have found her absolute judgment of women in this vein hard to negotiate. I mean, the, the, the language that she uses really uh, uh, t- borders on misogyny in terms of its analysis. So that the gap between uh, who women are and how they've been constrained becomes very blurred in her analysis, which is, ex- which is deliberate because for her it is precisely uh, narcissism that is the affective condition of women's oppression. The economic relations of sexuality are not only a question of women's position in or outside of marriage, but also, of course, a question of reproduction. Women are not only commodities themselves, but also producers of the next generation of exploitable labour within the twin evils of capitalism and militarism. Not only is women's experience of sex and love one of ignorant misery, then, Her reproductive labour is bound as part of what President Roosevelt saw as a national duty to provide offspring for the nation. Some of Goldman's most rousing, tub-thumping analysis is produced as a critique of this abuse. Indeed, as she appeals to the mostly working-class audiences who have direct experience of bodily violence of labour and know well which bodies are disposable in wartime. And so she says, The defenders of authority dread the advent of a free motherhood, lest it will rob them of their prey. Who would fight wars? Who would create wealth? Who would make the policeman the jailer if woman were to refuse the indiscriminate breeding of children? The race, the race, shouts the king, the president, the capitalist, the priest. The race must be preserved, though woman be degraded to a mere machine. And in 1916, while America prepares to enter the First World War, Goldman spits, capitalism roars through its whistle and machine, send your children on to me, I will twist their bones, I will sap their blood, I will rob them of their bloom. For capitalism has an insatiable appetite. She's saying this in 1916. And through its destructive machinery, militarism, capitalism proclaims, send your sons on to me, I will drill and discipline them until all humanity has been ground out of them, until they become automatons, ready to shoot and kill at the behest of their masters. Capitalism cannot do without militarism, and since the masses of people furnish the material to be destroyed in the trenches and on the battlefield, capitalism must have a large race. Social aspects of birth control. As in her writing on marriage, Goldman's prose is dripping with anger and reflective of the violence attending reproduction, from women's drudgery and ill health in childbearing to the misery and pain of seeing one's children destroyed by labour or war or both. Importantly, women are uniquely situated in bodily terms within both capitalism and militarism then, but also in terms of their role in reproducing capitulation to these economic and political strictures. It is precisely because of their role at the border between private and public that Goldman considers their sexual emancipation all the more significant as part of a revolutionary vision. 
Three, women's freedom, sexual freedom. It is crystal clear for Goldman that the effective and reproductive roles of women are central to the perpetuation of capitalism and militarism and thus key to their overthrow. And indeed, in her autobiography of 1931, she notes, Now that I had learned that women and children carried the heaviest burden of our ruthless economic system, I saw that it was mockery to expect them to wait until the social revolution in order to right injustice. Goldman joined other anarchists, socialists and feminists in their insistence that women's freedom could not be framed as a peripheral issue, but was central to how both injustice works and to challenging the same. In an interview for the St. Louis Dispatch in 1908, she states, quote, You touch on what I consider, I should consider the most vital subject in the world, women's freedom, her total emancipation, absolute sex equality. As an anarchist, Goldman was, of course, highly suspicious and critical of reformist moves to provide a women's platform and was thus notoriously and often viciously against suffrage on the basis that it would never result in real transformation of women's condition. For Goldman, suffrage, while not a bad aim as far as it went, she occasionally acknowledged, could only ever be a set of superficial changes that advance the lot of a minority of women and create a fantasy of equality that continues to disadvantage women in both public and private realms. Instead, Goldman insisted that real transformation, real equality, had to occur first at the level of the individual woman, since without overcoming her, quote, internal tyrants, unquote, uh, that's from um, uh, women's emancipation, she could not be expected to want, let alone gain, anything more than minor amelioration of her oppressive conditions. She must first focus on herself, must rid herself of her short-sighted aims and desires, those that characterize her oppression within capitalism. And remember, it is she who is most duplicitous at the subjective level, and so this would be the most hard. Woman can give suffrage or the ballot no new quality, nor can she receive anything from it that will enhance her own quality. Her development, her freedom, her independence must come from and through herself, first, by asserting herself as a personality and not a sex commodity, second, by refusing the right of anyone over her body, by refusing to bear children unless she wants them, by refusing to be a servant to God, the state, society, the husband, the family, etc., by making her life simpler but deeper and richer. That is, by trying to learn the meaning and substance of life in all its complexities, by freeing herself from the fear of public opinion and public condemnation. Only that, and not the ballot, <clears throat> will set woman free, will make her a force hitherto unknown in the world, a force for real love, for peace, for harmony, a force of divine fire, of life-giving, a creator of free men, and women. That's from Woman's Suffrage, 1910. From this dramatic but actually rather typical quote, we can draw out a couple of key strands in Goldman's thinking about change for women. First, as indicated, woman's freedom must come from herself, from a freeing of her body, but also in line with her anarchist principles, from an emphasis on qualitative over quantitative value, a richness and depth rather than ongoing commodification or accumulation <clears throat> of riches obtained at the expense of others. 
Second, so in a sense for, for, for Goldman, uh, accumulation and, and commodification uh, are in part um, problems of quantification over, over um, qualitative value. Second, to become a free subject, one with a different set of values, a force hitherto unknown in the world, she must gain control over her reproductive body. She, and she alone, must decide whether and when to have children and how many. Third, she must be that force for real love that is currently curtailed by marriage arrangements. To focus on the second and third strands here, Goldman was a lifelong advocate of birth control. There she is, agitator of birth control. <laughs> in part following her experience as a midwife, in which she witnessed the harm of multiple births on women's bodies and the self-perpetuating misery that she believed large families brought, and <clears throat> particularly to the poor. For Goldman, as we have seen, unwanted children tie men and women to a life of drudgery and misery, making revolutionary activity difficult to imagine, and forever emphasizing the importance of money over interpersonal relations and a vision of social and political justice. For Goldman, again as we have seen, the tie that binds capitalism and militarism is the production of a reserve army of labor. And, uh, and this can, and sh uh, can, should, and is, for Goldman, being in interrupted by women's growing dissatisfaction with their rollers machines in the generation of cannon fodder. Using the familiar eugenics arguments of the time, and I'll come back to this, Goldman foregrounds the harm done to the race by what she calls indiscriminate breeding and strongly advocates small families and the resting of control by women in relationship to their own reproductive bodies. So to give you a sense of her arguments in this vein, she will no longer be a party to the crime of bringing hapless children into the world only to be ground into dust by the wheels of capitalism and to be torn into shreds in trenches and battlefields. Nothing so binds the workers to the block as a brood of children, and that is exactly what the opponents of birth control want. <clears throat> Woman no longer wants to be party to the production of a race of sickly, feeble, decrepit, wretched human beings who have neither the strength nor moral courage to throw off the yoke of poverty and slavery. Women are declining to perpetuate the race if it cannot be done with delight. I now and here declare war upon this system and shall not rest until the path has been cleared for a free motherhood and a healthy, happy childhood. I haven't got time to go into it today, but she also writes extensively about children and the importance of free education. In, 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 in imitable performative style, Goldman's writing on birth control emphasizes the rise of women's anger and opposes this with the alternate affects of enthusiasm and delight in raising children when this is an active choice. Indeed, while critical of forced motherhood within capitalism, Goldman was extremely celebratory of motherhood under appropriate conditions and in many ways considered it to be the most elevated state of all. In a draft for a lecture in 1927, Goldman lords, quote, the mother courage, the mother greatness, the maternal instinct, unquote. In an article for the Denver Post in 1912, she describes free motherhood as woman's deepest function and insists on both freedom in love and freedom in motherhood as essential to the accomplishment of anarchy, quote, 
Unless we have free women, we cannot have free mothers. And if mothers are not free, we cannot expect the next generation to assist us. Unquote. To return to the third strand, I'll come back to the uh, some of the issues around birth control in a bit. To return to the third strand, um, Goldman was also a lifelong advocate of sexual freedom and the power of love, unconstrained by marriage. As Rogness and Faust suggest, for Goldman, marriage's greatest crime against humanity was to bind love as an infinite source of energy, passion and strength to the state and capitalist economy. Once freed from the burden of marriage, men and women would be able to develop real intimacy, which could serve as the basis of a revolutionary passion rooted in their experience of a different, deeper way of relating. In other words, you relate first, and then that produces the impetus for revolution because of the experience of real value. I believe, she says, that when woman signs her own emancipation... I don't I think I have this, do I? No. I believe that when woman signs her own emancipation, her first declaration of independence will consist in admiring and loving a man for the qualities of his heart and mind and not for the quantities in his pocket. Unquote. Love, unfettered by economics, should be generous and joyful rather than petty and restrictive and result in what Candace Falk describes as, quote, harmonious relations between the sexes, unquote. For Falk, though, sexual freedom is a metaphor for social and political unity, while in my reading here, it is a fundamental experience of real value from which Goldman believes political mobilization must spring. Goldman's language and actions are extraordinarily celebratory of sex and love. The tone of her advocacy is animated, yet also intense, at points even semi-religious in its fervor. And so she insists. The voice of love is calling, wildly beating against their breasts, asking the suffrage uh, women to heed it. Love, the strongest and deepest element in all life, the harbinger of hope or joy, of ecstasy, Love, the defier of all laws, of all conventions. Love, the freest, the most powerful molder of human destiny. Someday, someday men and women will rise. They will reach the mountain peak. They will meet big and strong and free, ready to receive, to partake and to bask in the golden rays of love. Thus she can abandon herself to the man of her choice as the flowers abandon themselves to dew and light in freedom, beauty, and ecstasy. Phew. <laughs> no pressure, you know. <laughs> Goldman advocated sex education for girls, as you might imagine, insisted on sex as nature's demand, and a most intense craving for women as much as for men and believed that not being able to experience and express the depth and glory of sex experience would, quote, undermine a woman's health and break her spirit, unquote. It won't have escaped your notice, I would imagine, that her prose is firmly focused on heterosexual desire, and indeed Bonnie Harland and Laurie Marceau both critique her for her failure to extend free love to other contexts, at least to the same extent. While she lectured widely on homosexual freedom, particularly men's, the archive of her thought on same-sex desire is scant by comparison. 
In relationship to male homosexuality, we have her supportive letters to prominent sexologists, and we know she lectured on the topic, but no copies of these texts remain. Speculation abounds as to what happened to them. In relation to women's same-sex desire, we have even less. A couple of brief mentions in her, in her autobiography concerning relationships in prison and unfortunate women speaking to her tearfully after her lectures. Her occasional mentions of lesbians as, quote, a crazy lot in her letters to Alexander Berkman on more than one occasion, and her rather too fervent defense of French anarchist Louise Michel following accusations of her lesbianism and her appearance in Magnus Hirschfeld's Hall of Fame. And so in that, she, she resists too strongly, it seems, for uh, critics, uh, the fact that Louise Michel uh, may have been a lesbian. Over, um, the, the initial accusation is about a paragraph long, and her defense is uh, 17 pages long. <laughs> in typical, uh, typical Goldman mode. We might be able to read between the lines, though, of fragmentary notes making up the outline of her autobiography about how her, uh, so the, the, there's a, an outline and that isn't published, uh, making up, uh, about how her friendship with Margaret Sanger had allowed her to express her, quote, previous theoretical interest in sex variation explicitly, uh, reflections uh, upon which do not make it into living my life. Me, which would also give a slightly different take on how, why it was that they had argued uh, in terms of the uh, issues to do with uh, birth control. We might wonder about the lost replies also to the set of over 60 steamy, sexually explicit and often very long letters to her from anarchist labour organiser and sex worker Alma Desperi, as I certainly have. Despite these absence this year, there's no, none of her responses uh, exist, though it's clear that she did respond because uh, Alma Desperi uh, answers her. So we're trying to work out what she said. Uh, it seems likely uh, that she would have had a dabble. Let's put it that way. <laughs> though I think we probably don't know what that means. <laughs> or, or I would say even with an Emma Goldman, it seems unlikely she wouldn't have, if you see what I mean. Double negative. Despite these absences and lamentably hard to follow tracks, we know she was one of the few anarchists to speak out publicly in defense of Oscar Wilde, and along with Loretta Ken uh, Kensinger, I think we can read her delight in Walt Whitman as part of a consistent belief that individual sexual expression, creativity, and possibility of human freedom were intimately linked. Part four, politics and essence. I hope it's clear from the above outlining of the subject, matter, tone, and scope of Goldman's concerns with the links between love, labor, and revolution, why it is that writers during her lifetime and since have been seduced. Her ability to link sexual freedom with anti-militarism and international imagination with detailed accounts of domestic horrors, a concern for women without being blind to their faults, and a passionate belief in a better world as desirable and ultimately inevitable have spurred activists and critics to take up her words for contemporary agendas. Feminist thinkers such as Alice Vexler, Alex Shulman, Alice Vexler, Alice Shulman and Candice Falk in the 70s and 80s recovered her as a feminist icon, emphasizing her challenge to the public-private divide and her centering of women's experiences and their bodies as at the heart of revolutionary impulses and methods. This mirrored the consciousness-raising agenda, of course, and fit well with the aftermath of the 60s sexual revolution. 
More recently, and as Falk herself indicates, contemporary anti-globalization activists have been, quote, drawn to the resonances that arise between Goldman as an internationalist and as a critic of capitalism as it has evolved into an advanced worldwide economic system. A new generation sees itself reflected in the mirror of Goldman's spirited rebellion, unquote. Thus, Goldman has been variously claimed as part of a challenge to marriage and border regulation, the importance of her passion as an alternative to a rights-based political theory, a history of intersectional thinking uh, with sexuality at its heart, uh, and a natural link between contemporary anarchist and feminist concerns. As Ali Fogg notes for The Guardian, Goldman appears to be a, quote, thoroughly modern anarchist, unquote, And it is no surprise that Vivian Gornick also recently declared for the nation that, quote, Emma Goldman occupies Wall Street, unquote. And indeed, I am similarly compelled, obviously, to engage Goldman in terms of the precedent she offers for a less bifurcated history of sexuality in which the economic and the cultural, the political and the bodily are understood as always interwoven when it is a force for change as well as for control, and indeed as a way of uh, forcing a rethinking of that relationship. These same theorists, myself included, have since grappled, grappled less surely with her judgmental relationship to other women, her essentialism, and her excessive love of the opposite sex, struggling to work out how to retain her political passion and critique while divesting her of these less appealing aspects. Linda Lumsden and Bonnie Harland, at one end, both identify her thinking as absolutely essentialist, lamenting its centrality to her thought, but seeking to rescue its non-essentialist strands. Others, particularly at the queer or intersectional reclamation end, make no comment at all on her consistent appeals to nature and divine fire, uh, or try to clean her up by pouring and pushing her through a Deleuzean or Ranciarian sieve. For me, though, it is precisely the mush that's left behind in that strainer to be discarded as indigestible that is of particular interest and that I think offers useful insights into both Goldman's and our inability to separate politics and essence. In the first case, it makes little sense to try and cleanse Goldman of her belief in human nature or human essence since it is so fundamental to everything else she believes. To quote Day, Goldman's, quote, faith in the goodness of human nature underpins her in optimism that change is inevitable and her understanding of human intersubjectivity as a site of alternate values. Without that, without the first, there is not the second. Uh, alternative values and attachments, sorry. Indeed, it is Goldman's faith in an indefatigable human spirit that allows her to endure, to face political defeat after political defeat, the First World War, the systematic violence against labor movements, the disappointment of the Russian Revolution, the rise of fascism in Europe, as well as her own imprisonments, poverty, deportation, and difficulties in border crossing. In 1940, the year she died, she says, real freedom... True liberty is positive. It is freedom to do something. It is the liberty to be, to do. In short, the liberty of active and and actual opportunity. It seems perverse in the extreme to write uh, her appeals to nature as misguided, as though we ourselves can do without it, or do do without it, simply because we want to say that we do. 
To look a little more closely at the nature of Goldman's essentialism is instructive in other ways too, precisely as part of what it might mean to think through a materialist sexual politics and a sexual politics of materialism that may force us to debunk easy progress narratives or challenge theoretical and political certainties in the present. Goldman's essentialism is more complicated than a simple dismissal may allow. To begin with, she articulates it as more sexual than gendered. An essential female nature is, for the most part, a capitalist lie that we would do well to challenge. And if she does seem to believe in a female nature, it's often a female nature that arises that is not yet to be known. The fantasy that women are naturally passive, have a lower sex drive than men, or are less intellectually acute, is precisely what prevents women coming to consciousness from Goldman's perspective, and she has no truck with it. Indeed, she fervently resists the idea that, quote, vibrant virility, a favorite attitude of hers, uh, is masculine in any way at all, or that this degenders the women that take it on. For Goldman, well, so vibrant virility is a characteristic of any uh, um, liberated subject. For Goldman, what is outrageous about current sexual arrangements is that they turn something fundamentally wonderful into something fundamentally corrupt. So you have to believe in them as fundamentally wonderful first to understand the particularly unpleasant nature of corruption. And so her analysis of sexuality within marriage as central to capitalism is always paired with a parallel vision of it as a site of alternative values and attachments. The one is always intertwined with the other. The force that will overcome the sexual corruption upon which capitalism relies has no kinship with either a disembodied, ascetic, moralistic materialism or a smug social constructionism or post-structuralism. Instead, it takes your breath away and forges the world anew. <coughs> Goldman's vision of sexual freedom takes her into territory uncomfortable for a contemporary audience used to identifying essentialism as the prerequisite for critical rejection rather than a critical sticking with, or used to th thinking sexuality and materiality together only through a negative and not a positive paradigm. This is, uh, and I suppose my, thinking, uh, my reading of Goldman is that, uh, in fact, one of the reasons why sexuality and materialism are difficult to think through together systematically is because of an erasure of that history of the positive aspects needing to be included as part of a, an essentialist understanding of um, sexual meaning and power. This is particularly the case when we can, so the discomfort is particularly the, the case when we confront her politics of alternate family values with its twin modes of mother glorification and its eugenic commitments. Both rely heavily on her emphasis of, on quality over quantity, of course, on her vision of sometimes almost deified motherhood as predicated on family limitation, as allowing the reproducer of the race to be able to instill proper values in the next generation. But even this is complicated, since Goldman's birth control arguments are not put to the service of maintaining existing racial or social hierarchies, but in teaching the next generation revolutionary values. In that sense, she cannot be aligned easily with her contemporaries Bertrand and Dora Russell, say, who argued for controlled propagation of whiteness and class privilege. Indeed, it's her insistence on the broader context for family limitation that it, that it needs to happen in, con, in context with other social transformations that forces her break with the birth control movement, even while she champions women's choice throughout her lifetime. 
It's the single-issue part that she breaks away from. It is also absolutely the case that Goldman advances pure and generous motherhood as part of an idealized woman's nature when she's not demonizing it. But here, too, the contradictions are informative. There is unquestionably uh, a mother instinct, but for Goldman, women do not have to heed it, uh, nor do all women have it. In a letter to Max Netlau in 1935, for example, she insists that she never, quote, for a moment denied the fact that most women want to have a child, although that too has been exaggerated by the male. I have known quite a number of women, feminine to the last degree, who nevertheless lack that supposed to be inborn trait of motherhood or longing for the child, unquote. It is natural then, motherhood, but not universal, and it can be ignored. In her autobiography, Goldman writes of frequent pressure from her male lovers for her to have children and her difficult decision not to pursue the invasive surgery that would have given her that opportunity. Ed Brady and Ben Reitman both leave her in part to have children with other women and interestingly, Goldman frames this decision simultaneously as precipitating terrible loss of them and of the possibilities of motherhood and as a political choice that she stands by. So in other words, despite the loss, she never revisits that in terms of something that she wishes she had followed as a natural urge. Closer engagement with Goldman's sexual essentialism then reveals that where politics and nature cannot be aligned, she is as likely to try to prioritize the former as the latter, politics over nature. And indeed, much of the dynamic of her work results from the tension arising from the relationship between political will and the force of sexual nature. There was a furore in the 1980s following Candace, uh, well, as much as you can have a furore in academia, uh, following Candace Fogg's discovery of letters between Goldman and her lover and tour manager for over a decade, Ben Reitman. Feminists were, uh, enormous numbers of these letters, feminists were by turn appalled and, as Christine Stansel ironically adds, quote, fascinated by the great champion of women's freedom making a spectacle of herself before gamey Ben Reitman, a man on the make with any woman who crossed his path, unquote, which he was. Uh, their correspondence is filled with passion and misery, lust and sexually explicit suggestion and harsh judgment. <coughs> Uh, they are, um, they're in, in, uh, I would say about 50% of the letters are, uh, would, be would be counted as pornography. Uh, but it is Goldman who, in these, is, primary, is always the primary complainant, filling page after page after page with what has been characterized as an excess of heterosexual desire, attachment, and longing an embarrassment of affection, chiding, and self-abasement in the face of Reitman's non-reciprocity and political superficiality or connivance. Yet we can also read these letters, I think, of representations of the struggle Goldman experienced between passion and politics. In the letters themselves, Goldman moves from overwhelming lust to recognition of his political failings and manipulation, uh, frequently trying to persuade him into a, a more anarchist frame of mind, or when he failed to take on her political views, trying to end their relationship, yet forever drawn back to him. Uh, as Suzanne Poirier suggests, quote, Goldman's greatest anger with Reitman came when he had failed in her expectations for him, both personally and politically, unquote. Though she wants him to join her in her political commitments, she finds her hopes dashed, her belief that love could conquer political fallibility and weakness could inaugurate rather than stultify politics to be challenged. 
to the point where she questions her own belief in sexual freedom as revolutionary. So uh, these are just taken from a very short uh, period in their correspondence. Uh, uh, So Goldman to Reitman. Uh, It's all right for an impulse to pierce a human heart, to make it bleed and twitch as your impulses have done more than once. That's, uh, why have I put the sick there? (laughs) That's me. That's what the heart is is for. Mummy's heart is here for. But ideas are more important, dear. Don't you think so? One of the problems feminists have with um, Goldman is her um, constant referring to herself as mummy. Uh, Goldman to Reitman, 1909. What mysterious power emanates from you uh, that has such a terrible hold over my life? A power that can at once take me to a world of the greatest bliss and deepest sorrow. Tell me, dearest, what is it? I cannot reconcile my established belief in the power of love, a belief much deeper in my system than even the belief in freedom, with the realization of how little love has done for you. (laughs) So it's interesting to me because even when she's absolutely at her most apparently self-debased. She's, she doesn't ever forget to have a go at him, right? Uh, and so they're, they're always filled with, it's all right for you if you crush my very being. You know, I don't mind. That's fine. You please go ahead. And so on. Uh, and so I think it's part of the interpretation, I think, that's problematic is that, that the, they're not understood as letters hoping for a particular effect, which is that he writes back going, no, I didn't want to crush you. Uh, so, so my sense is that their status as letters is also very important. Uh, meetings, free speech, Mother Earth, her journal, are nothing to me now if my love, my life, my peace, my very soul is to be mutilated. This may also account for why I could crouch, and then she often refers to herself in the third person, also another problem, I think, on her knees and beg and plead with you. Yes, I believed in your love, or rather I believed too much in the power of my love to teach you. Marriage and thousands of pages. Marriage and love is hateful to me. Hateful because my faith in the power of love has been. Marriage and love is her lecture, been shattered. I used to think it can perform miracles. Poor fool that I was. Goldman and Reitman's relationship continues in this vein, uh, right up to 1919, and there's uh, almost a letter a day. ends with her deportation in Russia in 1919 rather than because of any real resolution. In her autobiography, and in fact she writes him letters from Russia, uh, you know, continuing to chide him about his lack of faith in the power of love to transform both them and everything else. Uh, In her autobiography, written some 15 years later, Goldman uh, has a more ironic take, as one might expect, passing their relationship with the distancing headers on meeting Ben Reitman. Uh, or, I cannot analyze Ben's appeal for me. Or, Ben satisfies my deepest yearning. Uh, and, Ben becomes intolerable. <laughs> Here, in retrospect, Goldman foregrounds the dynamic between love and revolt as one of struggle. One she would always want politics to emerge victorious in, even though it is passion that animates it. As Ferguson notes, quote, the very traits that drove Goldman to hold on to deeply problematic personal relationships also compelled her revolutionary resolve. She loved her revolutions in the same extraordinary way she loved her partners, unquote. Thinking through Goldman's sexual essentialism here, the pull of desire both towards and away from politics, 
the universal ideal that can nevertheless be subject to individual refusal might suggest an understanding of nature less as a given that underpins social transformation, as may initially appear, and more as an ideal outcome that is both invoked as part of politics but is also a semi-spiritual result of politics. Real passion of motherhood or between individuals can only be sustained through political will. And that political will can only be sustained with the belief that this passion can and will transform the superficial into the valuable. Goldman's genius then, and her pull for me, is in her refusal to separate the epistemological and the ontological, the terrain of political life and life as it is lived. In other words, this is not an argument for a, a reclamation of affect as in some way outside of politics. Uh, she refused, often at great cost, to relinquish the importance of the cultural, the embodied, the psychic, and the visceral in her account of the ills of capitalism and militarism and her vision of how it could and should be transformed. If we fail to attend to her complex understanding of nature for fear of being trapped by essentialism, then a false history of materialism and sexuality is the result, one in which sexuality is either peripheral to revolutionary analysis or in which only its ills can be made visible. If after spending time with her, you remain unconvinced of the foolishness of an opposition between material and cultural concerns, or still want to cleanse her of her complex, uncomfortable, but ultimately rather dynamic essentialism, I would ask you my closing question. What would politics be without the risk that passion precipitates? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claire. So we now have uh, 25 minutes for um, question-answer discussion. Uh, we have some roving mics, so uh, if you want to ask a question, if you could just put up your hand and uh, I'll send a mic to you. And uh, when you start speaking, if you could just uh, say who you are and sort of ask your question. So in the middle there, right. Middle at the back there. Hi, my name's Chantal. Um, I just wondered if Emma had any suggestions for what, in a societal term, might replace the institution of marriage. Shall I answer? Yeah, yes. We'll probably have to group them eventually, but that's... Um, Well, uh, yes. (laughs) Uh, Free love. And for her, free love could mean... Uh, love uh, could mean uh, sex with one other person over a long period of time outside of marriage or it could mean uh, multiple partners or it could mean uh, sequential monogamy um, or it could mean uh, refusal of um, sex and love Uh, not often (laughs) she's less keen she's less keen on that she'd think you'd get sick uh, so, yeah. <laughs> and uh, at, the, at the legal level, of course, um, she was, even though in general reform did not appeal to her, she was all in favour of certain laws being uh, scrubbed off the books and, and, and on that basis for the legalisation of birth control. Right? As, 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 I mean, that's not about 
something outside of marriage. But, you know, in part, one of the things that she's concerned with is that, people, is, that, is that one of the reasons that women are so dependent in marriage is because of the ways in which... Um, of the difficulties of surviving outside of, of, um, of marriage and still having an active sex life in terms of being able to raise children and so on. So she was also a very strong advocate of um, sex education for uh, young children and, uh, and onwards. I'm trying to think, what else did she suggest? Mm. So did, did the women bring up the children on their own? Uh, well, actually, one of the other things she um, was very keen on was saying, on the one hand, she uh, often glorified motherhood and, and, wanted, and thought that it was... Um, uh, the, the most fantastic instinct uh, under the right conditions, but she didn't um, directly link that to having to raise them yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, she was a very strong advocate of collective rearing of children uh, and thought that actually that, that one would do that in communities, ideally, and that, some, and that therefore for women who maybe had a, a maternal urge but were not able to have children uh, would be able to participate in that or the... Uh, um, that, um, that, in a sense, you might have an urge for giving birth uh, or carrying a child, but um, not uh, be particularly keen in seeing it grow up. <laughs> okay. So one down here. Um, my name's... Oh. Uh, my name's Simon. Um, thank you. Very interesting. Um, what do you think the reasons behind it's it, you imply at least how I, I read what you're saying that she almost deliberately seems to have sidelined her potential homosexual experiences um i just wonder w- whether you have any ideas as to sort of whether that wh- why she might have done that uh well she says why in one context which is that she um she took out of her published autobiography things that she felt would um do harm to people who um, uh, th- that she felt that she would be defaming and who were public figures or you know wouldn't want that to be spread. So part of it was that she um, deliberately took things out that, that she felt would hurt people. She was writing in the south of um, France and uh, after she'd been exiled uh, from America and then also Russia. And so she, uh, one of the issues was that it was quite difficult to check with everybody <laughs> uh, what they did or didn't want in it. The, the, um, I think that in that case, um, in terms of including potential homosexual experiences, it's interesting that she doesn't mention somebody like Alma Desperi at all. She doesn't either way as a friend or as a uh, correspondent. Uh, and I think... Certainly one one can't ignore the extent to which this would have been uh, difficult for her to negotiate. I I think that... um, I think wanting her to be a closeted lesbian is a mistake, though. Uh, uh, Partly because it it seems very clear um, that she wasn't interested in sexual identity, you know, irrespective, that that actually her interests were in sexual freedom and in, for her, a very strongly um, articulated passion for the opposite sex. I don't think that she, uh, I think it's fairly, uh, I I would, um, if I had to, if I was, if I did have to lay money on it, I would be absolutely 100% um, all the money on the fact that she had sex with women. 
you know, no question. Uh, partly because when Alma Desperi responds to her, you know, she, she's often talking about very explicit um, sexual experiences that, that they had together. And, of course, she could be fantasizing those uh, and, and so on. But it seems you'd have to go, you'd have to kind of... Um, go through a lot of work for that to be the case. But I, <laughs> I'm not sure why you'd want to go through that, through that labor. Um, so I, I, I think she was ambivalent, actually. I think she was ambivalent about women, actually. I think she's very hostile in lots of contexts, and I think she's probably, uh, in terms of the, what we do have, that she think you can read through her work, uh, the published work particularly, the bits that she does leave in are presumably the bits she thinks are quite acceptable, and she uh, is less kind to uh, lesbians than she is to uh, homosexual men, right? So in, in terms of her scathingness. Um, and, you know, she, she doesn't have uh, so many lifelong uh, women friends as a lot of her, uh, the people who lived at the same time as her. Um, so I, I think that part of her ambivalence about that is also about her ambivalence about women in general. Um, and why spend? And she explicitly says at various points, "Why would you spend time with women when you could spend time with men?" Which is, you know, not <laughs> not endearing. <laughs> oh hi, my name's Sal. I've got just one quick observation um, and one quick question. Observation is really, you said she wanted to make a great emphasis on women's sex education, and we might feel now that that's you know, something that's happened, but considering the kind of internal structure of the clitoris is something that science is only barely investigating and is not taught in any context. I mean, sex education is more about pleasing men and not getting pregnant. So I think her vision is yet to be realised there. Um, the second question is, you briefly mentioned in passing about... Um, her having a vision of transforming s social relations um, through following kind of effective desire, um, that's something I find very interesting. It's something that's compatible with Marxist thought as um, social relations are part of the societal base. Um, do you know if anyone's, any, anyone's work has explored that? Um, anyone's work's what, sorry? Explored that kind of strand of theory. Um, thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think sex education has even begun to scratch the surface, has it? I mean, in terms of what we know is taught in, in schools, uh, framed very strongly still around reproduction uh, and so on. Um, there are some hilarious um, uh, fragments of notes on various lectures that she gave on birth control because, of course, the, the, sense, of what, of, of, of the sense of how you would uh, intervene uh, in order to... Uh, prevent uh, conceiving children was uh, way <laughs> off, off base. So she has these various sorts of things around, um, you know, if women aren't enjoying it, which is highly problematic, uh, but also uh, issue, things that men and women should do that were um, with each other that are, um, I've never heard or heard anybody think. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so, of course, you also, you know, her suggestions for sex education might not necessarily have been things that prevented, contraception, prevented conception um, in all cases. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in terms of uh, transforming social relations as something that uh, 
that needs to focus on the bodily, sexual and affective dimension. Um, I suppose this is why it's quite interesting to me that she is, uh, she, uh, is really interested both in the anarchist and socialist writers at the time uh, and the feminist writers at the time and in um, the psychoanalysts because I think in some senses you could trace her legacy. I mean, of course, there's lots of other people who believe in free love um, that are writing at the time, but who don't necessarily bring it together in, in, in precisely um, the, uh, the manner that she does as a particular challenge to social relationships. Um, but certainly you could track her forward through radical psychoanalysts, um, through um, actually the sexual politics work of early feminism. Uh, you could see her work reflected in uh, anarchist... Um, uh, publications and, and people like Michel Foucault, indeed, uh, in terms of their emphasis on uh, sexual pledge, pleasure and bodily uh, experience as not linked to identity, as a, a mode of trying to um, reconfigure uh, the relationship between body, pleasure and society that, that is understood as radical. Um, so I suppose, you, you know, you could read all of those in, in that sense. And the idea is to, in a sense, intervene between, at a different point to the social uh, in, in terms of what it is that undergirds it and, and binds it. She is, though. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know that you... you I think... I'm not sure that you don't have to be essentialist because I, I suppose in some senses that, that's kind of my point, which is that I think that to have such a fervent belief that the power of bodily reconfiguration and um, passion could transform the social and reconfigure the relationships between the body, pleasure, um, within a revolutionary frame, um, that on some level you have to believe in that then as some kind of force that is experienced bodily and that... Uh, but if effective labor is exploited labor then you have to believe that there's something about ethic that pre-exists that that can be exploited in order to be reclaimed yeah, no she, and it's sexual for her yeah can I, can, I, can I just ask a question about the, uh, the essentialism aspect? The, the, can you say a bit more about the, um, the theme that seemed to come up a lot, which is the kind of the opposition between quality and yeah. quantity? I mean, is that, is that kind of... Is, is there a kind of... There's, a, there's an understanding of human nature there. Is, yes. is that right? That's what it rests on. Yes. If you could just say a bit more. Um, yes. Um, she has lots of work... On, and actually particularly in her work on education and children, um, but also uh, throughout her work, there's a very strong strand on, on um, knowledge, actually, uh, on epistemology, which is that um, anything worth knowing <laughs> uh, needs to be known in terms of its depth, not in terms of its quantification. So at, at one of the hearts of her critique of capitalism is that capitalism fosters a, a cumulative quantitative mode of valuation so that you know you're, you're, uh, you're, you, you are given power the more money you have uh, uh, you are uh, you are valued for your uh, ability to accumulate 
um, and that the and that you can um, you can put against one another, well, this number of people would die, but this number of people would be saved, say, in a war. She would have no truck at all with that kind of analysis because for her, the meaning of a, of a life is, is, is precious. Mm-hmm. And that in a sense, that preciousness can only be returned to once you rid yourself of, of, of a kind of quantitative grid framing through which you analyse the world and instead focus on um, questions of real value and quality that she believe, believes... Um, spring from uh, what we already know. So for her, uh, children uh, only need to be taught to express themselves <laughs> uh, within a social framework. They don't, in a certain sense, need to be taught facts. She's got endless hatred of facts, stuff, facts, facts. What's the point of facts? You know, all they do is basically you know, deter you from your real object, which should be the kind of improvement of human interaction and the, uh, and the uh, improvement of uh, how it is that we see the world and, and, and one another. Now, the da- and, of course, the danger with that is, to begin with, when I was reading her, I'm kind of, oh, brilliant, you know, it fits completely into my qualitative emphasis and yeah quantitative terrible and so on um, but the but the problem with that is of course that then when you come to look at things like her birth control arguments and, and uh, the question of eugenics that's that's the basis upon which she can build an argument that says that you know indiscriminate breeding uh, you know basically needs to be stopped so she never moves in so in a certain sense the uh, it's the same argument that allows it's the same uh, framing of her thinking that allows her to make arguments about sexual freedom and the body that also uh, draw her into this uh, difficult territory. Um, so I think it's... Uh, and so then I think that's really interesting and quite complex rather than something that we should try and, and sort of clean her up around because, in a sense, it's a, it's, um, it's a politics of... of, of um, of, of value that, that also means then that um, uh, well it's also very uh, it's also very um, prescriptive in, in lots of ways right uh, so so one there um, in the in the blue and then in the middle there hi um, Kate Nash can you hear? Yes. Um, I just wondered, sort of following on from that, what you think of what you would then make of her sort of social theory of capitalism? Because, you know, historically, uh, marriages, chattel slavery, absolutely. You know, breeding, nothing, nothing but breeding soldiers, absolutely. You know, you can kind of see it. But I was just wondering if then, if she, you know, whether that, that's sort of what we might think of as a materialist social analysis doesn't exactly hold now and I was wondering if there's something also in the way that you kind of said that she these were speeches that she gave they were about rhetoric they were about it sound, it almost seems as though there's something to do with passion as well there's something mm. about creating a sort of you know a kind of feeling that we can do something and we can make you know we can know these things we can make things better ourselves by living according to our own value and so on. So I was just wondering whether there's, you know, that sort of, whether her social theory is also what we would expect now from a social theory or whether it's something else. Whether, I don't know, is there any, do you have any views on what social theory is? <laughs> Almost certainly not. Um, but I, <laughs> I, uh, 
Her theatricality has been written about quite a lot, and interestingly, um, which is very much about her as a kind of... Um, as a performer who also produced herself as um, a central figure of the anarchist and socialist movements. Uh, and in, that, it, that she produced herself with, and, and partly interestingly with her manager, the gamey Ben Reitman, uh, that, that you know, part, of, part of his agenda was to kind of make her into this populist figure who would always, and he would keep trying to make her um, say more and more provocative things and she would resist him, and that would also be exchanged in their letters. So there's this very interesting dynamic, which is partly about how she produces herself as a kind of theatrical character. She did things like gag herself when she had been um, encountering issues like free speech. She would sit on the stage with gags on. She would chain herself to the desk. Um, she would thump and rail. She would refuse to spend to share platforms with people and so on. So she was very much about generating a kind of... She was about, uh, in, in a very anarchist mode, about generating the kind of passion now that we hoped that would, would characterise the future. Right. So in that sense, she's, it's not just in her sexual relationships with others that she's trying to do that. She's also trying to do that uh, in terms of her production of thinking as a kind of using, in a certain sense, passion as its, as its base. Um, in terms of then her social theory... Um, of capitalism. I think one of the things, of course, the time is, is different and you couldn't just import it. And I think that's one of the problems that, that um, one encounters in reading quite a lot of the secondary criticism where people are picking and choosing the little pieces that enable them to say, uh, for example, well, she would have called in, in advance the fact that, you know, despite, you know, having formal equality in contemporary Britain, uh, the relationship between domestic labour and cultural and psychic freedom remains uh, still to be addressed, right? Well, it doesn't sound so absurd to me that one could say that about contemporary Britain, but, I mean, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to just start importing those, uh, those things through from the context in which she wrote... Um, I suppose I, 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 you know, in a sense, the paper um, is bound then to overemphasise the, the question of of, um, of passion and love uh, as both freeing and as well as constraining, because that's what I wanted to draw out. Uh, but um, the important, an important aspect of her thinking is that um, this isn't the end. You don't do that and then everything's fine. You do that as a way of sustaining other forms of revolutionary engagement, other forms of uh, engagements with and lifelong uh, determination to destroy capitalism. So that, that for her, it, the enactment of the passion in the now is also what needs to happen in order to both get a glimpse of how real living could happen and also to sustain you as capitalism continues to, um, to uh, well, basically violently and often absolutely destroy resistance, as was certainly happening at the point that she's talking about. But I think that is, is interesting in terms of the fact that, uh, you know, it, it can be thought of as a method uh, in, in a sense, rather than necessarily a full account of a full social theory. Hi. <clears throat> Thanks very much for your paper. It's really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you, kind of in connection to that maybe, um, about the relationship between love and violence um, and this kind of idea, if not Emma Goldman's own relationship with, you know, political assassination and this, this sort of 
um, idea of confrontation, but also her kind of reading this world moment where these confrontations or this pursuit of rupture is happening. Um, and reading her kind of her polemics against capitalism and this sort of enmity as incitement, I wonder um, how love kind of ties into that as maybe a form of commitment that is demanding or enabling of that same sort of um, confrontation, or and if that means it stands against enmity, or is there a way in which love demands enmity or demands confrontation? She, she was abs- She was passionate uh, in her loves and hates, um, and I I suspect that in her writing, because of and in her life, that um, to be able to sustain. Um, attachments to comrades dispersed and so on and so forth um, it probably did require being able to also sustain um, a kind of anger and hatred of the forces that separated people and the forces that destroyed them um, so in a certain sense and it's hard to pinpoint which, which comes first in the sense I don't think one has to um, but in part her Anger is is precipitated by the kinds of violence visited upon people that she loved and uh, the population that she was ambivalent about. <laughs> um, but she uh, certainly, um, when attached, any when attached to someone or or a particular passion or a particular set of beliefs, any challenge to that produced an equivalent fervor, which I'm. Which I'm sure must also have been what sustained her as, a, as an anarchist in her 70th year. <laughs> so there was a, sort of so five rows from the back um, uh, in yeah in, in blue in blue there sort of five rows from the back. Thanks so much. Can you hear? Okay. Uh, no. No, that's a no. Right. <laughs> Um, Claire, you said a little bit about the Emma Goldman archive. Yes. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the Emma Goldman papers. Yes. um, The collection. Is it still in California? Is it still in San Francisco? Is it staffed? Is there an archivist? Um, Is it in good health? Um, And also, are there any Emma Goldman papers in the UK? Will there be any in the Women's Library that might be becoming LSE's way, for example? What are... Any sources? Um, hmm. You you must. uh, It sounds like you know. (laughs) 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 That doesn't. Oh, you don't know. Okay. Well, I can happy to answer you. Um, The Emma Goldman Papers Project uh, is uh, linked to UC Berkeley and is a separate um, um, archive, which collected together under the auspices of um, Candice Falk and her colleagues, uh, as much uh, of the uh, material, ephemera, uh, photographs, published and unpublished lectures, uh, and writing about her, um, uh, that there is. So it's the most full collection of her materials, um, and I I spent time there uh, um, last year. Um, It it doesn't have uh, a vast number of originals. Those are located in different libraries across um, the U.S. and Europe, um, but it does have the fullest collection of uh, copies uh, all together in one place. And the group of people 
uh, involved in the Emma Goldman Papers Project are in the process of publishing four volumes of her writings while in America, three of which are uh, out, uh, one of which is literally out like last week. Um, and so that's a very, I mean, that's an amazing project uh, that's been going on. It's encountered considerable difficulties with maintaining its funding, partly because the funding was uh, initially pulled, um, partly because of internal difficulties and, and arguments, uh, and also because of a, a kind of anxiety on the part of um, Berkeley to uh, fund uh, projects that um, contained materials on terrorist uh, post 9/11, uh, but in fact the stay of execution, which had been had been uh, heralded, has been see, has been stopped, and they have another. I think it's another four or five years before the before the difficulties um, will no doubt uh, raise their heads again. I don't know if um, uh, the, there's a microfiche uh, microfilm uh, archive of, of a, a selection of that work that is in UCB and a lot of other American and European uh, libraries. It's not at LSE. Uh, it's extremely expensive. Um, but, it, uh, but LSE has a lot of um, anarchist pamphlets, uh, writings um, of uh, Emma Goldman and other, fe uh, other feminists during that period, and so on. So LSE has a pretty good collection, and it also has an amazing collection, I realised, of um, anarchist journals from the period, um, almost as good as the British libraries. So does that answer your question? Uh, I, I, there are a couple more people who'd like to ask questions, but I think I'm going to bring it to a close here and suggest that you come along to the fifth floor of Columbia House for our reception and ask your questions there. And for the moment, uh, just thank Claire again for her really passionate lecture. <laughs>